0: Hear us when we pray that the great glory of being reconciled to you through Christ is that we who were your enemies and at hostility with you by your own sovereign grace have been brought near. We have access no longer through a priest and a temple and the blood of bulls and goats, but we have access through the blood of you, the Lord Jesus Christ. You gave yourself for us willingly on that cross to suffer for us as a substitute, to bear for us the curse of the law, to endure for us the wrath and the condemnation that our sin rightly evokes from a perfectly and infinitely holy and just God, so that we could stand free in you, every requirement of justice satisfied, every affection of mercy and grace accomplished. On our behalf. Thank you. Help us to delight in these things as you give us grace to understand them more as they're revealed in your word. And we come now and ask that you would be our teacher as you are our teacher, and that you would unfold to us the glories of Christ through the church of Philadelphia. And we ask these things in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So go ahead and open up your Bibles, if you will, to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're coming again now to our second message, uh, looking at the church of Philadelphia. Looking at the church of Philadelphia, as you know, one of the uh, only two churches of the seven churches that Christ has no word of condemnation for, but only commendation, only a word of his blessing to them and his acknowledgement of their faithfulness and their steadfastness in him, their Unwillingness to compromise with the world around him. And you know, as we read in first or second Corinthians this morning, uh, chapter one, as it's always uh, inherent in some of the songs that we sing in the songs this morning. Is that we as Christians, and, and I know particularly as we're going through these churches, I, I mention this a lot, but we live in hope. And in other words, we we live according to realities that only a Christian can see, only a Christian can know, only not only a Christian, but only one who is regenerate, only one who has been born again, only one who has been moved from death to life and from blind to seeing and so forth can see these realities even as. We mentioned in our prayer in Psalm 73. In other words, we live by the things in Paul's word, not which are seen, but by the things which are unseen. Uh, we, We live according to truths that are hidden from the world, but are plain to us through the eyes of faith. And particularly through the eyes of faith that see these realities through the window of the word, the word of God in Scripture, where God has revealed them to us. And so we live by faith, not by sight. We live in hope of what is to come, not being dragged down and anchored to the false pleasures of this world. We live in Christ. We live according to the word. We are a people of the book. We live holding on to Christ amidst all us as his people, we live faithful to Him, knowing that whatever is sacrificed to Him in this world will be more than abundantly repaid, more than abundantly rewarded in the age to come. And there are there are delights in heaven, and I think we're all in, in excited and to get to the the last. Chapters of the book, we have a a long way to wade through before we get there, but we all want to get to heaven. We all want to get to what is the end of all of it? What is the reward of our hope? What is the delight and the blessing that it ultimately promised to us that God had determined before the foundation of the world that every spiritual blessing is ours in Christ Jesus? We have but a small taste of it now, but the real glory of it is to come. And that's what the church lives by The church that's faithful to Christ, the church that doesn't compromise, and the Christian who is faithful to Christ, and the Christian that doesn't compromise in the face of opposition. And that is the message, that is the the message of Christ to this church at Philadelphia. And what is the reward of faithfulness to Christ? Uh, Well, ultimately, it is service to Christ. It is the Christian's joy to serve Christ. And the greatest joy that God can give to a Christian is greater areas of service that flow out of a greater love and trust in him. And so here we are with Philadelphia. It is the church of the open door. The church of the open door. Uh, Let's read it and then we'll review where we've been and and look at uh, verses 8 and 9 this morning. We'll try to tackle. Uh, Let's begin in verse 7 though of Revelation chapter 3. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, He who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens, says this, I know your deeds. Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing. That hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. And he will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. He who has an ear... Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Well, as we've noted over the last week, first the context of the church, and so by brief reminder, the church at... Philadelphia is one of the newest of all of the churches in terms of its formation as a city, and yet it was a significant city primarily because of its location, as with all of the other six churches. That's why they are addressed, because they were key points in the Asia Minor where there was a lot of access and a lot of travel and a lot of influence. But that is particularly so here with the church at Philadelphia, sometimes referred to as the missionary church, and we noted that uh, it has been often recognized. Recognized, or at least asserted that the position of the church at Philadelphia made it a unique place for the spread of ideas. And it was seen as that, particularly by one Greek emperor as the or leader as the, the place where he could use as his home base to spread the ideas of Hellenism, Hellen, uh, Greek language, Greek culture, and so on and so forth. It was a city that was used to Uh, The precariousness of life as it was near a volcano and and used to sudden earthquakes such that it was a dangerous place to live. And many of the people lived not inside the city but outside the city in farmlands and so forth. And there are many allusions to that even in Christ's message uh, to the church. And then we noted the character of the one who speaks to them. And as with each of the letters, he addresses, identifies the church, and then he identifies particular attributes of the speaker who is addressing the church, those of the exalted Christ. And these attributes of the speaker are tailored specifically to the message that will come to this people. And so in noting the character of Christ, the second point uh, he says here that he who is holy, he who is true and has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open. He as within each of these characteristics as uh, the exalted Lord addressing the church identifies himself. In his glory as not only the exalted Messiah, but the exalted Messiah who is the exalted Messiah who was the Son and is the Son in flesh, the eternal Son of God. In other words, they are descriptions of both those realities of who he is as the exalted Messiah, the God-man, and who he is in terms of his essential nature as God, the Son, who has lived forever in perfect fellowship and glory with the father and with the spirit and so here he says however he is holy he is holy and so we looked briefly at that term and said the key idea of holiness is that of separation in reference to God it speaks of his transcendence in other words that he is separate from his creation he is God everything else that he has created is not God he alone holds that position he alone is God it speaks also of his separation from anything that is unclean, anything that is unholy and of sin. And that's usually the idea the way that we speak of it is that he is holy to speak that he is pure, he is without sin. The very definition of sin is lawlessness of that which opposes him. He is the very essence, the very source, the very reality of everything that is good and beautiful and right and true and so forth. He is absolutely holy. We noted as well that, that we, by as, uh, as those who are in Christ, are holy ones. That word translated "holy" is is often, most often, is used to speak of us as Christians who are saints, who are saints by our position in Christ. He is holy by His own nature. What He is by nature, we experience by grace, and He is holy. And He is addressing the church. He is high and holy, pure, and He is also true. He is, stands opposed to everything that is a lie, everything that is untrue. He is the one who alone is true. Everything he speaks is true. Everything he does is according to the truth. He is the one then to be trusted. And and we noted there just even briefly that the only, everything else in this world uh, is prone to change. But he is doesn't change. His word never changed. He is true. And then we noted as well that he has the key of David. He is the one who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one who opens. And here he is focusing primarily as him who is king over his kingdom, him who is head over his people and head over the church. He is the key of David. The idea of key is authority, it is the idea of authority. And to say of David is to say him who is the ruler over the promised kingdom of David. He is the Messiah. He, and it is a kingdom of salvation it is a kingdom of redemption it is the kingdom that he purchased with his own blood to use the language of paul we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son and this is the kingdom that is being spoken of here to say that he is the one with authority over this kingdom in who, which he had purchased with his own blood is to say that he has absolute say over who is in the kingdom and who is not in the kingdom. In other words, that's the idea of opening and shutting He is sovereign over salvation. He is not a tepid Savior. He is not a timid Savior. He is not a needy Savior. He is the sovereign Lord over heaven and earth. He speaks and it comes about. He acts and His will, which is in perfect harmony with the Father, is accomplished. In other words, He is sovereign Lord over the church. He is not wringing his hands to see who will believe in him. He is, in fact, opening and shutting that opportunity and that reality to all men. He is sovereign. He is absolutely sovereign. He is the one to whom all men should bow their knee. And one day all men will bow their knee, acknowledging his glory. And so he establishes this sovereign authority, this sovereign glory to the church up front. And we kind of left it there. And I want to just remind us that the overarching idea then of this uh, opening statement is that he is the one who stands above and as essential determiner and as the essence of God's purposes of salvation in this world. He is sovereign. And we noted that idea of keys, we'll come back to this a little bit later, but is also associated with the promise that he made to Peter, I will give you the the keys of the kingdom. And the keys of that kingdom were, in fact, in that context, in Matthew chapter 16, the message of Christ. Just before that, Peter had said, by revelation of the Spirit from the Father, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And it is that message, when believed, that brings one into the entrance into the heavenly kingdom. And again, we left it there last week. But I want to just wrap that point up uh, by considering the explicit declaration of the Old Testament that ties in to this affirmation of the person of Christ here in Revelation 3. Let me just remind you of a few texts that would have been in the background of those you heard. And they come, of course, out of Isaiah. First is in Isaiah chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 13. I'm just going to give a couple. Now, as we've mentioned several times, because we go back to the book of Isaiah, there's many allusions there, there's many connections there with the prophecies uh, given to the people of Israel here with the, the realities of the message of Christ to these churches. But in Isaiah chapter 40, as we've noted, just by way of reminder, there is a shift that comes about. He's, he's He's no longer addressing a nation to be prepared for judgment. He's addressing a nation who is in judgment, and he's giving them a word of promise and a word of hope, saying, yes, God sovereignly placed you where you are, but God will also sovereignly take you from where you are back to where he has intended you to be, which is in the land which is in the land, and so he's reminding them of many things, but that is right at the heart of it as well, that God is God, God is sovereign, God's purposes have not been thwarted, God is not frustrated, God is not wringing his hands, God is doing exactly what he said he would do, and he will do exactly in the future what he has said he will do, and so we come to, and and the, and the, and the imagery here in Isaiah 40 and on is that of a courtroom, God is placing himself as it were on the stand and saying, and you are my witnesses and I'm, I'm laying before you my works and you be the judge. And so he says in Isaiah 43, uh, verse 12, he says, it is I who have declared and saved and proclaimed, and there is no strange God among you. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. Verse 13, even from eternity I am he and there is none who can deliver out of my hand. I act and I can reverse it. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar was not the true ruler on the throne when he overtook Jerusalem and destroyed my people and carried you off into captivity. The king of Assyria was not the ruler on the throne when he took the northern tribes and he destroyed Samaria and that area and took them off to captivity. God is on the throne and he is accomplishing his purpose. He acts and none can reverse it. He says in verse 46, again just briefly, And this is part of that language of them being forced to acknowledge the works of God and come to a right decision. He says in verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. He will do it. He has determined it and He will do it. That meant He determined that Israel would be a nation. He determined that Israel, and even declared before it happened, would sin and reject His covenant. He determined that Israel would go into judgment for their rejection of Him. He determined how long that judgment would be. He determined their deliverance, and He determined every single thing about their experience. He was absolutely sovereign. And that is the same Sovereignty that is displayed here in Christ. Can you imagine the highest and most glorious and exalted angel of heaven saying, I shut and no one opens? Can you imagine Michael, the archangel, who would not bring a rebuke against Satan, but said, the Lord rebuke you. And yet here stands Christ above all angels, above all who are in heaven, because he is the exalted Lord who is sovereign. He is, again, sovereign by his own nature in terms of his divine nature, and he is exercising that sovereignty as the Messiah, as the God-man who has accomplished God's purposes and reigns supreme over it. And again, this is in harmony with everything that we saw, or everything that's revealed, uh, even throughout the Gospels, throughout all of Scripture, but the Gospels in relation to Christ and His fulfilling the will of the Father. Uh, Let me just remind you of a few passages, just briefly. In Matthew chapter 11, you remember he talks about their rejection of the people of both him and John the Baptist of John the Baptist they said you know he's just a crazy man of Jesus they said he's a glutton and he says no it doesn't matter wisdom is vindicated by her deeds and ultimately the wisdom of God will be vindicated by what he does by the life of Christ and by the work of Christ. And then he he began to denounce the cities that rejected him, even though they had much revelation given to them. And then he sums kind of all of this up, and he says in verse 25, I praise you, Father. This is is a, a prayer of gratitude, a prayer of worship, a prayer of adoration over this reality. What? I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and you have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. It delighted his heart. It was good. It was the highest good. It was the greatest possible good. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. Nor does anyone know the Father except the Son. And look, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. In other words, the sovereign will of God is accomplished in the Son, and the Son shares in that sovereignty, even in his role as Messiah, and he is the one who determines who comes into the kingdom. Remind you of another familiar passage. Again, we're just briefly looking at these in John 6. In John chapter 6, Jesus is, of course, addressing the crowds. They saw his miracles, they heard his teaching. Some were most of them were rejecting, some were believing, but most were rejecting. And so that, that created a confusing situation. And the confusing situation is, why are some believing and some not believing? And so Jesus answers that specific question, if you look at verse 36. He says, "I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You've seen my works." You've seen my life, you've seen my power, you've heard my teaching, you've seen my life, and yet you do not believe. And so here is the question, why? Why don't you believe? Why of all of these masses of crowds don't you believe? Why is it only a few that believe? And then he explains why that is. I'll tell you why you don't believe, he says in verse 37, because all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing and I raise it up on the last day. This is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. Who is the one who beholds and believes in him? He says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. What does it mean to be drawn by the Father? Verse 45, it is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. He gives some other hard teaching, and again, some of the disciples left, and it was very hard for them to accept that teaching. And then he answers, well, why is that? Why are some of them listening? Why is it difficult for some in verse 60? And he says, he answers it again. It's the Spirit who gives life in verse 63, verse 64. He says, there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray them. And look at verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. The point simply is this. That salvation is according to the will of God. And Christ participates in the sovereign accomplishment and execution of this will of God. He understands that. He executes that and speaks of it even of his time on earth as he walked among us. And he does now, in an even greater glory, in a sense, as he speaks from heaven. And he says, I am the one who is sovereign over the kingdom. That is the will of God, that no one can know the Father unless I reveal it to him. And my revealing it to him is a part of the will of the Father, and there is the triune glory of God. The Father plans, the Son accomplishes, and the Spirit applies. And so he's declaring that reality then to the church and saying, I am the one who is responsible for your coming into this kingdom that you now enjoy. And I am the one who will determine the opportunities and the blessing and the reality of your experience of that kingdom and your service in that kingdom. So let's consider that though a bit more. Closely. And let's note, thirdly, the commendation of faithfulness. So there's the character of Christ. He's holy, true, and sovereign over salvation. And then there's the commendation of faithfulness to this church. And so he says in verse 8, as he does with each of the other churches I know your deeds, I know your works, I know your deeds. Now, what's interesting about his statement here in verse 8 to the, to the church at Philadelphia is as he, as he kind of leaves that hanging. He just kind of leaves that open. You know, I see your deeds and I see your works. And he doesn't immediately go into a description of those deeds and of those works. Now, we'll look at this in just a minute. But he does at least allude to them, allude to their faithfulness, allude to the kind of works that that he would have been commending here. When later he talks about the fact that they have kept his word and they have not denied his name. But essentially, he just gives them a commendation and he leaves it there. And then he says, Behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Now, we have to stop here as we're going to have to do it a few places along the road. But acknowledge here a translation issue, which is going to have some implications further on as well. Uh, many of you, if you have a New American Standard Bible or even an ESV, you'll see a period right after the word deeds and then capitalized behold and it begins a new sentence. And this is the first of three behold statements that will follow uh, after I know your deeds. And so, the however, some older translations, in fact, you, and some of you might have... Uh, in parentheses, right after I know your deeds, parentheses, behold, I have put before you an open door which no one can shut in, shut, in parentheses, and then because you have a little power, and so forth. And so the question is then, is the behold I have put before you an open door and a side parenthesis that he's going to address later and that the content of the works is really what's picked up at the because you have a little power and have kept my word and so on and so forth. It is actually a a difficult decision and it's going to bear some weight as we go on. It's a difficult decision but I think it's better to stay with the way the punctuation of the New American Standard and the ESV which in fact is probably commentators are split about 50-50 on that. Uh, maybe it seems even a few more want to get rid of the parentheses and say this is a, a new statement. and uh, Or excuse me, instead of saying this is a new statement, but keep the parentheses. But I think it's probably better here to stay with what the translators have in our New American Standard is saying this is... A new statement. He says, I know your deeds. And he just leaves it there as a, just as a way to say, I know your faithfulness. And he moves immediately in then to what is the reality of that faithfulness or the consequence of that faithfulness. What is going to come about uh, because of that faithfulness? And so then that moves into the first behold statement. He says in verse 8, I know your deeds. behold. I have put before you an open door, which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. I have put before you an open door, an open door. Now, we might be familiar with that imagery, I'm sure many of us are, of a door. It's a metaphor. It's used in a variety of ways nuanced ways. You're familiar with the statement of the Lord Jesus in John chapter 10 where he says, I am the door of the sheep. Speaking there that he is the entry point of salvation. He is the entry point into the presence of God. He is the one who brings the the sheep into the fold, as it were, into the salvation experience, into the life of God which is had in him. He is the door In Luke 13, 24, it's a door used as an opportunity for salvation. He says, strive to enter by the narrow door. There is a a door that is wide. There is a a message that is very broad that allows a lot of people in unto salvation, requires very little and promises much. And he says, that's the broad door. But then there is that narrow door that promises everything but says, it requires much, nothing less than complete death to self and embrace of Christ. He says, strive to enter by the narrow door. And then he uses it in a different way in James 5 9, and it speaks of the imminence of judgment. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing before the door and it's almost the the idea that there is a judge that is just just out of sight on the other side of that door and the door could be opened at any moment and the judge will be seen and his judgment will be experienced. So it's a a common metaphor uh, throughout, particularly in the New Testament. Interestingly, the image of a door is is used two times, other times, in Revelation. The first, or the second, is in verse 20 of chapter 3. We'll come to this again, he says, and we're familiar with this. I grew up in a Methodist church, and so maybe some of you all have seen this. There's been others where it was a picture on the wall, and it was like a, a door with vines overgrowing it, and Jesus is standing there knocking on the door, and it was you know Revelation 3.20. Uh, It comes from this verse. But he says here in verse 20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. And it is an invitation and appeal here primarily for repentance. And then a second time in chapter 4, verse 1. He says, after these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And here, essentially, it is a a metaphor to speak of that access or that entry into the glories of heaven. And here, in that case, into the throne room of God. He's saying, there is a door. It's not shut in this case. It's open so that you can enter in, see these glories, and then report on it. And that is what we have recorded for us in chapters 4 and following. So the basic idea, however, primarily here in Revelation, and the basic idea of the open door is that it is an invitation and an opportunity. A closed door is to keep out, it's to shut out, an open door is to invite in. An open door you enter in, a closed door you are kept on the outside. Okay, that's well enough. But what does he mean here? What does he mean here to say to this church at Philadelphia, I have set before you an open door? Well, there are two ways primarily that this is understood, and really only two possible ways. Sometimes there are suggestions made, although these are in the minority, is that the the open door uh, is of prayer and access to God, or the open door is Christ himself, but Uh, Those can be uh, put aside. The two primary ways that this is understood is one is to see the open door as Christ promising to this church at Philadelphia and saying, because of your faithfulness, I have set before you opportunities for service. I have set before you a, 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 a possibility of witness of the gospel of Christ that you have been faithful to that will take your privileged position and let your witness spread and your faithfulness spread to uh, other areas the second way that it's understood is to say that he is assuring them and saying look though you have been rejected by the Jews though you have been rejected by everyone else I have set before you the door of salvation which cannot be taken away from you they may have shut the door to you at the synagogue they may have shut the door to you in every other place but I have opened up to you the door in, in that sense the only door that matters those are the two primary ways Let's just briefly consider this. Let's begin with the second option. This latter position, that is that, that Christ has opened up for them... is to say uh, the certainty and the surety of salvation and entrance into my kingdom by your faith in me is usually founded primarily on its connection at the end of verse 7 that we discovered that he has the key of David that's clearly understood as being he is sovereign over entrance into his kingdom he's sovereign over salvation and so the, the idea there is then again That he who is sovereign over salvation is saying, and I will assure you that your salvation and your trust in me and your sacrifice for me is going to be rewarded with certainty of entrance into my kingdom, with participation in my kingdom. And no one can take that away, not the unbelieving Jews, not the rejection of your secular culture or not your secular culture, but the unbelieving culture. Nobody can take that away. Stay faithful. Stay committed to what you have begun and what you have believed. Uh, This is possible. It's very possible, actually. But probably I would lean towards the second option. And that is seeing this not as an assurance of their salvation. It's not an open door in the sense of saying that what they have closed to you, Uh, I have opened to you and that is the kingdom of salvation, but rather appealing to them or at least promise, excuse me, promising to them that your faithfulness has brought to you the reward of greater service, of greater service. As we noted in the introduction and when we looked at not this, uh, this time, uh, well, we did mention this time, but uh, last week. Is that there is most likely here a historical illusion or contextual illusion of this church to say that this city was recognized by many as having a significant uh, location and was significant in the purposes of the spread of Greek culture. It was sometimes, it's been dubbed by one historian, a missionary city. And he, he's very possibly pulling in on that connection with them. They would have understood that. They would have understood the history of their city and say, yes, now that that we are the, the, or because of our faithfulness to Christ, he is opening up to us and saying, you have the privilege then of being my witnesses uh, in that area. A second reason that that's likely is because this open door is set before them, the church. It's not so much an assurance of what they have, which they're clearly displaying by their faithfulness, but what they will have, what is, an op- what is something that he will give to them. He's holding it out for them. And so therefore, if we take it that way, the connection with the end of verse 7 would be this sense, would give this sense. He who is sovereign over salvation and the fruit of his gospel is sovereignly giving you the opportunity to witness to it. Just as he was in control and stands over your own salvation, as he upholds you in your own faithfulness, he will uphold and continue to expand his kingdom through you and through your faithfulness. And in fact, I would just remind us again, is this fits precisely with the promise of Christ to his people, even borrowing with that same imagery of the key. Let me mention it, Matthew sixteen nineteen again. He says this, I'm going to just mention briefly two passages. Jesus said in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. My Father who is in heaven, I say to you that you are Peter upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now these keys are those which are possessed by Peter in this sense and by the other disciples. We'll look at that in a bit. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. And that is that as you proclaim the gospel as you lay the foundation for the proclamation of Christ as the Messiah you are acting in accordance to God's sovereign will and his purposes and he is accomplishing through you his own will. And so it comes with divine authority not your authority but the authority of heaven. Uh, similar idea is given in John chapter 21, or John chapter 20. Let me just mention it to you, verse 21. This is now the risen Christ uh, with his disciples, not yet ascended, but he is risen from the grave and is spending time with them. And he says, Jesus said to them again, peace be with you as he, as he meets them. Uh, Gathered together. He says, The Father has sent me, I also send you. You are my witnesses. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. In other words, you are my witnesses. You are my representatives. You are the ones, my messengers, through whom I will establish the doctrine of the church, and of the gospel. And whatever you affirm as consistent with this gospel that has been entrusted to you, you are, in fact, displaying what has already been declared beforehand in heaven, the will of God. So you are going to be my witnesses. You are going to be the ones through whom I establish my purposes in the church And there's a sense then in which that is the idea here is that he who is sovereign over salvation has now entrusting that as a reward for their faithfulness to this church and in that sense to every faithful church. And in fact, this is also the most common way that these words are together used in Scripture. Let me just read them to you. Acts 14, 27. When they had arrived and gathered the church together, they began to report all the things that God had done with them. And listen, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. He'd opened a door of faith to the Gentiles as they preached the message, as they went forth and God's gospel began to spread. It was described here as the door of faith being opened. In First Corinthians 16, 19. Paul said, a wide door for effective service has opened to me and there are many adversaries. 2 Corinthians 2.12, now when I came to Troas for the gospel, when a door was opened for me and the Lord, that is an opportunity to be a witness to the gospel. Colossians 4.3, praying at the same time for us as well that God will open up to us a door for the word so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ for which I have also been imprisoned so that seems here then to be the sense primarily is that he's saying, I have opened a door for you. I have given you an opportunity for service. You have been faithful to my name. And now through your faithfulness, the gospel goes forth and I will empower you with it and guarantee the success that I have determined before the foundation of the world. It's an opportunity of service in his kingdom. It certainly includes the idea that he has brought them into this kingdom. It certainly includes the certainty that they have in this kingdom of their future salvation. But the emphasis here in the promise inclu- is uh, focused on the fruit of that faithfulness, and that is to be a witness to him. To be a witness to him. And he emphasizes this as well when the next statement. I have set before you an open door which no one can shut. In other words, don't think your exclusion from the synagogue, don't think your rejection by others has hindered the reality of what I will accomplish before you. In other words, all is not lost. I have opened it. nobody's going to shut it. I'm the one who's in control over the gospel, over my kingdom. So it's, it's a sovereign act of Christ and it is... It is the mercy of God in Christ. It is the mercy of God to all of us in this sense that he has declared and determined good things for us to do, works for us to do. And they, they, he will accomplish them through us. Listen to Ephesians 2.8. We are his workmanship created for good works which God ordained beforehand that we should walk in them. And there is a sense in which that's the promise here and the promise to us. God has given you a good work. The greatest good work is to be a witness to his name, is to be a faithful messenger for the gospel, to be the feet on which good news comes. But I want you to notice something else here that's important for us to get an encouragement from. They've been given this opportunity through their suffering. They've been given this opportunity for their suffering. Now, we'll look at that in just a sec, but notice in verse 9, he says, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say they're Jews, they're not, but they lie. They'll bow down at your feet. He says, you have kept the word of my perseverance. In other words, the the situation they find them in is that they are being rejected. They are being rejected. And and it seems the main opposition is coming to them by rejection from the Jews and the Jewish synagogue. Again, we'll mention that in a sec. But the promise here is that in the midst of that rejection, in the midst of persecution, it's actually not hindering your witness, but providing the opportunity for the greater spread of that witness. And service to Christ. Now, I just want to notice here, just for a sec, this is a great encouragement to us. This is a great encouragement to us, particularly in our Western kind of Christianity here. We're so easily discouraged. We're so easily discouraged when things don't go well. Or when it seems like people aren't accepting our message. Or when there seems to be the least opposition. It's almost like a nervousness comes over the people of God. A kind of anxiety over now what are we going to do? People don't like us and they don't like the message. What are we going to do or, or imagine when there is actual, if it, as it is for many around the world, for us if there's, there's actual even less and less freedoms that we get to enjoy because of the name of Christ and can feel like, oh, all is lost. So, so somehow when, that's, when it's not understood, the temptation can be to say, well, then we need to kind of change something. We need to hold on to our freedoms so that we can be a greater witness. And that's not the logic of God. That's not the logic of the sovereignty of God as he stands over his gospel. It is that though you are persecuted, sometimes it is that very persecution which I will use to spread my name, to be a witness, to further the gospel. There's many examples of that. We can see that, of course, even within, I mean, most commonly we talk about the Church of China and others, that there was a very small seed rejected for years when the gospel was first brought there. And then the the gospel began to spread underground. And the more the persecution came, even as in the early church, then the more the gospel began to spread and the more opportunities came. And the more people looked at this people who had been transformed and said, what is that? I want some of that. And so they were rejected by many, but those who remained faithful are those are the ones who have had the greater opportunity for service. This is just as a side note in a little bit different direction. But those churches that compromise, those churches that try to lessen the sharp edges of the gospel, who try to somehow limit the sharp edges of the truth of God, not, not... saying not in gentleness and compassion and so forth, but the reality of the truth. Those are the churches that are one, if you go across the land, particularly in Europe, that are shutting down and empty, or if you go here that are loud and busy but have very sanctifying and saving reality among the people there. And so he's saying, no, but you haven't compromised. You haven't compromised. And so I'm going to give you an opportunity. And your persecution Is not a means of your being put on the shelf, but actually it's a means of you being a greater witness. And again, we see that throughout, well, throughout the New Testament particularly. In Acts chapter 5, or excuse me, in Acts chapter 4, we mentioned it briefly last week, but the disciples, some of the apostles, they were brought in, they were brought before the Jewish leaders, they were disciplined, and they went out, what? Oh, no, now they're all against us. What are we going to do? They said, no. Their voices with one accord said, God, you are the sovereign Lord of creation. You are the sovereign one who has promised in Psalm 2 that though all the nations raise against you, you will accomplish your good purpose. And guess what? That good purpose was accomplished even when Christ was hanging on the cross being mocked by your people. Your good purpose was being accomplished and it is that Christ that we are proclaiming now who didn't stay on the cross or stay in the grave but rose and is building his church. The early church understood what it meant to be persecuted and very often this was, not, uh, this was the means of their witness and encouragement to others. Listen to this amazing statement in Philippians chapter 1. In Philippians chapter 1 he's writing to this church and he says this... He says, in verse 27, he says, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Whether I come or you remain absent, I'll hear of you. You're standing firm in one spirit, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. Now look at verse 29 if you're there. Or listen. For it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. And isn't that exactly the same commendation that he gave as the apostles? The apostles recognized in Acts chapter 5. They rejoiced. Why? Remember? Because they were considered worthy to suffer for the gospel. Here he's telling this church and he's not saying, oh my, it's so tough. I mean, certainly there was compassion. That's the comfort that he talked about before in 2 Corinthians. But he's saying, it's your privilege. It's your privilege. It has been granted to you. This is is to your benefit that you have been considered faithful enough to be considered worthy to suffer for the gospel of Christ. I don't know about you, but... That's very different than my natural, my natural response to suffering. That is a work of grace. That is a work of grace. And he says, I want you to see it as a grace. I want, to, I want you to see the suffering and the consequence for your faithfulness not as a punishment, not as a discipline, not as things out of control, not out of the, the sovereign chaos of the world, but a sovereign gift from your Lord to advance the gospel, to advance the gospel that's said over and over and over throughout the new testament let me just mind you again in verse 14 of first thessalonians chapter 2 brethren you became imitators of the churches of god and christ jesus that are in judea for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen even as they did from the jews who killed the lord jesus and the prophets and drove us out and they are not pleasing to god and hostile to all men and he says they were a hindrance to their ministry and they're filling up the measure of their sin And he says, but the gospel is going forth. The gospel is going forth. The church is formed and it's going forth through you. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 11 that the testimony of his faithfulness and his true apostleship is that he suffered. And in fact, interestingly, four canonical letters are written by the apostle Paul when he's where? Guess. Prison. When he's in jail. Colossians. Ephesians. Philemon. Philemon. And what we just mentioned, Philippians, he's in jail. And he says, what did he say in the first part of Philippians? He says, I'm in jail, but guess what? My faithfulness, even though I'm a prisoner, even though I'm in chains, the gospel is spread throughout the Praetorian Guard. People are getting saved in the emperor's house. Why? Because as a faithful witness, even in those hostile circumstances, the gospel is going forth through them. And there's a sense in which that is the idea here is saying you're suffering, but you're suffering and you're being faithful and you're suffering. And therefore you have this privileged position by the sovereign Lord to be used of him for the gospel to go forth from you. For the gospel to go forth from you. And so he says, Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Again, there's some other translation issues here, but the NSB has it. Because, in other words, he's grounding. For this reason, you have a little power and have kept my word. In other words, because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not died my name, that's why you have this reward of greater service. And what does he mean by a little power? Uh, A few people want to say that's spiritual strength, but that's not the case here. That wouldn't make any sense. As a matter of fact, he's commending them for their strength. You've stood firm. You haven't compromised. You haven't, you haven't in any way abandoned the gospel. You've stood firm. Now, what does he mean by little power? He's simply acknowledging here that saying you as what appears to be a beleaguered people a rejected people, even being rejected by the Jews whom you claim to worship their Messiah, even though you have a little power, little influence, even though you may be small in number, could be the idea here too, I have recognized the integrity of your testimony. Even though you have a little power, even though you seem as nothing, and that's exactly what Paul said, right? Not the noble things of the world. We read that in Sunday school. Not the mighty, not the impressive, not the wise, but the things that are despised by the world. God has chosen to exalt His name and to bring glory to His name. And so he says, you have a little power because you have a little power and you remained faithful. He's identifying their position in the world. And again, this is a seduction to the church, and this is what we can have. This is a seduction, isn't it? This is where we feel very seduced internally. What do we want? What causes compromise? What brings liberalism into the universities? What what brings the kind of cowering in the public arena? Oh, Basil isn't here, the public square. Um, What brings that? It's the fear of being thought stupid, unintellectual, not very clever, not important enough, right? It's this this intimidation of being thought less than, and we feel it. People will often say, I don't, I don't have as much intimidation going to a person on the street, or maybe somebody who has less education than I do, or whatever. But you go to a successful person, you go, wealth has an intimidating power and presence. That's why in the Old Testament it's often referred to as glory, it's a weightiness. It's a heaviness about it. Somebody who's accomplished in some way. And so there's the idea to want to be respectful for them. And so we couldn't say creation was in six literal days and it's a young earth. Why? Because you're stupid. You're kicked out. You lose tenure. You're rejected out of the professorship. And so you compromise a little bit. You compromise. There's no... There's no error in the New Testament. There is no error in the manuscripts. God has preserved them. And we would argue for that and say this is in fact the supernatural word of God. We can say there's some errors. It's mostly true. It it has the general idea of truth so you can know about Jesus and and live a happy life. But it certainly has areas too where we, we don't want to give it full authority and sufficiency. So we run to other things psychology, other things. And so there's that temptation to compromise because, because to be seen with a little power and a little influence can, can make us want to, to try to gain that respect of others. And he's saying they didn't do that. You have a little power. You have little influence. But you have remained faithful to my word and you have not denied my name. And I see it. The world may not see it but I see it. You may not have much position in the culture in which you live. You may not have much respect by others, but I see it. And in your weakness in the eyes of others, you have actually displayed the deepest and most profound and most worthy and most lasting and most glorious strength. And what is the ultimate display of that? Because you haven't denied my word. You haven't denied my name. You've been faithful. You've kept it. And these are the two evidences then of what it means to belong to Christ. You've kept my word and you've not denied my name. They didn't shrink back and they didn't compromise. They're essentially two sides of the same coin. It's what marks them out as being the true people of God as opposed to the others that aren't. Like Sardis, whose works were not complete. They went halfway, they had a lot of stuff, but they weren't willing to go all the way that would actually cost them something. That would actually be costly to them, sacrificial to them, but not the church at Philadelphia, not any faithful church. You prove yourself to be those of God by obedience. And again, this is what he commends throughout Revelation. The dragon was enraged in chapter 12 with the woman. We'll we'll get there down the road. But the dragon was enraged with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her children. I just want you to notice this one point. Who are her children? Who are the the ones who are truly belonging to God? He said, who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Same thing in 14.12. He says this. Here is the perseverance of the saints. The holy ones, actually, who, who are in Christ, who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. So they're, they're among the children of God. You've kept my word. You have not denied my name. And again, this is said in many other ways. You're familiar with these words. Let me just mention and connect it here. In 1 John chapter 2, Oh, we know these words, but he says, it's not the one who says, I've come to know him but if we keep his commandments. Beloved, do you know what the ultimate evidence of faith is and regeneration? At the end of the day, it's not feelings. It's not crying when the worship song comes on and saying, I'm so deeply touched. Jesus is my all in all, you know. Or or having some strong reaction because the music is loud, the beat is drumming, the guitars are... Capturing some kind of emotion or affection, which any music can do. It's not that. And then you leave and you say, I worshipped God. I worshipped God. And then you go home and you allow wicked thoughts in your mind. And we sin and we have no deep repentance of heart. And we don't pursue holiness and relationships. And we're not humble. We go into the world after that great worship service and then we act and think just like the world. That's not the evidence. That's the lie. That's the great deception that has seduced so many because it's so sensual. It's so appealing to the flesh and we so want to think that that's what it means to know him. And he says, no, what does it mean to know him? It is to keep my word. That's what it means. It means to to leave the gathered worship and be not enamored with our own experience but to be enamored with Christ in such a way that we go out and we want to live for him. That we've been humbled in his presence and we say, I've not lived for him as I want to. I want to do better this week. And I want to do better tomorrow than I did today. And then the next day and so on and so forth. That's the evidence of faith. And so he says, it's not the one who says I've come to know him. It's not the one who, we see some of, no, anyway. It's not the one who says I've come to know him. He says this. Who can finish that verse? It's the one, you may finish it, who keeps my commandments. Yes, who keeps my commandments. Yes. It's not the one who says, it's the one who keeps my commandments. And that's what they did. And that's what a true believer does. Not perfectly, but then when we don't, what do we do? We find ourselves on our face again before the Lord saying, forgive me, forgive me. And we know that that forgiveness is promised and it's real and it's true. And so it is the relationship of love and obedience between Christ and his people that they're displaying. And that ultimately is saying, you've kept my word. You've kept my word. You've kept my word. You've heard with your ears. You've seen with your eyes. You've understood. And you've come to believe. And you've been faithful amidst opposition to it. And you've proven to be my children. And so therefore, I have given you opportunity. I have blessed you with greater service. And you've not denied my name. And this is an example of a church Then we want to follow. Obviously, we'll get to chapter 9, verse 9 next week, 9 and 10. This is the example. We would want to say, yes, I have a little power. I may be ridiculed by the world, but guess what? That's okay. It's not the world's affection that I want. That's okay. It's not the world's pleasure that I want. It's not my friends. It's not the work world. It's not... Anyone but the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to please him. And I may have little power in their world, but in the true kingdom, I have the power of God through the gospel and his spirit in the inner man, as Paul said in Ephesians 3. And so that's what we seek. And we want to be faithful and we want to be not denied. And we ask that God would keep us from ever compromising. And remember this. That the suffering that God may bring, as if anybody is wrestling with compromising because of the, what might be lost, remember it is that lack of compromise which is the very essence of his use, your usefulness to him in this world, of exalting his name and showing his worthiness. Well, let's pray and then we'll, we'll pick it up there next week. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of this church at Philadelphia as you're with your faithful people throughout the world. Even among our own congregation, there are examples of those who haven't compromised, who have put it out there that they will not bow the knee to the ideologies of the world, whether it be the LGBTQ movement, whether it be that acknowledgement that they want to force upon your people to say that a boy can be a girl and a girl can be a boy, we don't have mothers, we have birthing persons, to stand firm on your truth and to say no, no, not out of vindictiveness, but out of a love for the truth. I can't do that. And so their witnesses increased, and you give them opportunities wherever they are. We thank you for those who have stood strong throughout the history of the church, and it is through the blood of your people that we have the written word of God preserved for us, though ultimately by your providence, but they gave their lives for it. We have the faithfulness of your people, of your apostles and others who have suffered and they've suffered well. And because of their suffering, the gospel has gone forth. Some who languished in prison or years and decades of ministry with seeing little fruit. But through them, you you gave them the opportunity to sacrifice their lives for you. And sometimes they didn't even get to see the fruit of their lives. It came after them. But you who sees and declares beginning from end, who sees all things at once, who is eternal, knows exactly what you're doing. So let us see whatever you bring into our life is not because of the gospel, not as a hindrance to your work, but in fact the very context in which you will glorify your name and accomplish your purposes. Encourage us, Lord, to to not compromise, to be faithful, to pursue holiness in our lives, And we commit them to you in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. John.